Thank you, Don. Thank you for doing this, first of all. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. First question that I want to ask every professor is that how annoyed do you get when a student comes late in class? Student lateness is a really interesting thing. It's, um, it is irritating because yeah. it's disruptive to the, the other students who are in the class. It's disruptive to the teacher. Um, and it shows a certain amount of disrespect. Okay. So, yes, it is irritating. <laughs> I know some people who lock the door at the appointed hour, so people who are late aren't allowed in. Yeah. Um, so you really find it disrespectful? I do find it disrespectful, yeah. But, but my, my main concern is that it's, it's disruptive for everybody. Yeah. Sorry, I've been guilty of that a few times. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember? I do, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Um, now, uh, I was when I was reading about you, uh, like you were, your advertising career started like it's been going on since thirty five, forty years. Something okay. like that, yeah. yeah. Too long to remember. Too long to remember. So, uh, was it always in advertising? Uh, pretty much. It, it depends how you define advertising, but always in marketing communications. So, um, okay. Uh, how did it start? Now, where are you from? I'm well. I'm British, so actually half Scottish, half English. Oh, okay. Uh, and and my advertising career started in London, um, and um, I cut my teeth there. I went through various training programs with two or three different different agencies in London. Some small, some big, some um, small clients, some very big clients. Wait, this was just after graduation, and it was yeah, pretty much straight after graduation. Okay, and where did you graduate from? From Durham University. Ah, from Durham. And um, as soon as you graduated, you got a job in London? Or yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a small agency. Uh, the first agency I worked with was relatively small, although it was actually London's fastest growing agency at the time. Okay, nice. And yeah, okay, then you started working there. Okay, continue. Yeah. Um, and that was, being a relatively small agency, it was kind of sink or swim. Um, so there wasn't a formal training program, but you just got on with the job, uh, learned on the job, as it were. Um, and some really interesting work. I got involved with uh, sponsorship. So, I, in fact, was involved in the very first sponsorship of the Williams Formula One team, um, which was a lot of fun, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and interesting and diverse clients. Um, I kind of lacked the idea of formal training um, so I my next move was to a much much bigger agency an agency called Darcy Macy Spenton and Bowles um, which uh, was a fairly institutional and uh, international agency with formal training programs and stuff um, there I did a lot of work with Mars both in the UK and internationally yeah, um, and with Express Dairies and, and various other companies. Um, so deepened my understanding of what it is to work in advertising. And to cut a very long story short, that eventually led to my going with them via a circuitous route, but with them to the Middle East. So they wanted me to go and sort out a problem that they had in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Which company was this, Mars? Uh, this was the agency DMB&B. Okay. Okay. But yes, Mars was one of the clients. Um, and it was one of the clients in the Middle East as well as in the UK because it was a you global client. you mind telling client. me what was the problem? Um, the problem was that they had an office in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia yeah. which uh, had been losing money hand over fist and the, uh, the gentleman who was running it at the time seemed to have 
gone AWOL, I suppose. <laughs> so there was an office of three people. There was, when I got there, me and a bookkeeper who was an Indian male and a secretary who was another Indian male because obviously in Saudi Arabia you don't employ females or didn't then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was the entirety of the agency. So uh, it was a bit of an issue and there was some you know, legal setup problems. It was illegal in the way it was operating. Its premises was a residential flat which was cockroach infested and had dripping ceilings and stuff. Really not the right sort of environment for an international ad agency. And some of the clients, who included Mars and Philips and um, Citibank, amongst others, were really disenchanted with what they had there. So it was a big job to try and turn it around, to try and eradicate an £800,000 loss, to try and make the thing legal in its construct and setting, to put it into a professional environment, and to retain the loyalty of those clients. Um, so um, that was a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And it didn't help that, uh, I don't know if you know, but in that environment you need to have a local sponsor who actually owns at least 51% of your business. We had two, which is illegal. One of them was a direct competitor, which is really not smart. Yeah. And the other uh, was a prince of the realm who didn't actually have an advertising license, so that's illegal as well. So a lot of unpicking to do, a lot of, a lot of re-engineering to do. Um, eventually it worked, so after, I think three, four years. We were in a position where we were making a lot of profit. We had about 30 people on board. We had a lot of new business um, and various successes there. So, uh, um, And how old were you by this time? I guess that I was in very early 30s. Oh, and okay, so um, you like, how did you like manage to turn this around? Like, I know it took three or four Difficult years. question to answer. Um, <laughs> I know that in, in practical or temporal terms, during the day I'd be wearing a sort of suit and tie and dealing with clients. And during the evening I turned around in my office and had a drawing board and was actually doing paste up and creative work. Um, so uh, kind of multitasking, if you like, before I managed to recruit staff or could afford to recruit staff who would take on some of that work. This was all alone? This Almost was all, well, pretty much all pretty alone. Much alone. Yeah. Wow. Now, clearly I was, I was working with, uh, or at least in connection with people in the London office and other offices around the world. But yes, it was pretty much all alone. And it was pre-computer, so you know, it was a, a different working environment. Yeah. So it was also on, drawing, on the drawing board. Wow. Yeah. Quite yeah. interesting. Using cow gum to paste up type and stuff like that. And I assume that uh, when I was reading about you, I, you worked in a lot of different countries. You, True. I'm assuming were you married by then? So in Saudi, when, once the Saudi operations started to be uh, t to turn a reasonable profit, the agency said, "Okay, that looks good. We want an office in Kuwait, in Oman, in uh, Dubai. We already had an affiliate in Bahrain." Uh, in Jordan, in Morocco, uh, in Egypt, and they also wanted one in Syria, but I drew the line at Syria at that point. Uh, so they said, okay, we've got offices in all of those places, and you're going to use the money that you generate from Saudi Arabia to pay for the development of all of those offices. 
to build a Middle East network. So again, a big, a big challenge. You traveled to all of those countries. So I went to all of those countries often and used different arrangements in different places. So we did have, as I say, we had a, an affiliate office in uh, the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. We en- engaged a new affiliate in Bahrain. We opened an office in Kuwait, opened an office in Egypt, opened an office in uh, Oman, opened, uh, actually put a, put a person into a different office, so our own person into a different office in Morocco. So we started to build up that network. And did I mention Egypt? We opened an office in Egypt as well. And all of that was to service the multinational clients that we had who wanted to be you know, active in those different territories. It was a bit seat of the pants for quite some time because we were trying to finance all of these new offices all at one time, all out of the revenue generated from Saudi Arabia um, because the, the international operation didn't want to invest any more money in that part of the world at that time. And not surprisingly, because we'd actually just been through the first Gulf mm. War. You worked in this company for how many years? Like, this seems like a very long project, like, at least 10 years. It was about seven years in total. Okay. And during that time, and certainly towards the end of that time, I had got involved in some interesting diversions. To Sorry. give you an example, yeah. the brand Twix, which is owned by Mars, I'm sure you're aware of it, a two-finger confectionery snack was positioned in the Middle East in the same way that it's positioned in Europe. So it was positioned as a kind of outdoor shareable snack, effectively, which is completely inappropriate for the Middle East for all sorts of reasons, both cultural and and pragmatic. Pragmatically, to eat a chocolate snack outdoors when it's 48 degrees centigrade (laughs) doesn't really work. Culturally, eating and sharing outdoors is, is not really acceptable on the street. So we wanted to change the thing actually to be more like KitKat, which is a competitor brand, to be um, an at-home indulgence snack. So you've got two fingers, so there's twice as much indulgence. Yeah. We could have tried to do that just through straight advertising, but we decided that it would be a much better idea to create an environment in the home where you might want to indulge. And so rather than using sort of limited 30-second television slots or page colors in, in magazines or whatever, we... Uh, created the Middle East's first ever sponsored television programming in Saudi Arabia. Programming at the time was probably 30% National Geographic content and 70% Islamic propaganda. So to have a game show was unheard of. And to have a sponsored game show took two years of negotiations with the uh, various ministries in the government. What game show was this? It was a game show that we devised. And it was called Sabak Ma'asa, which translates as Beat the Clock. It involved people from all over the kingdom of Saudi Arabia participating as contestants. They went through heats and what have you. And uh, as you can imagine, extended families are really important. So it rapidly built a very big audience. We had to shoot it, at least the first few series, we had to shoot in Saudi television's own studios in, in Riyadh. And they would only do one a week. So I don't know if you know, but when you make game shows, you would typically make a batch, a whole series in in a very short period of time to maximize efficiency and effectiveness. But doing one a week was protracted, difficult, long-winded. Yeah, that's, Uh, I understand. But it generated enormous audiences. And still years afterwards, if I would be walking around outside in Saudi Arabia, people would say, hey, Mr. Swit, Mr. Twix, to me. And I only (laughs) appeared on the program once, but... (laughs) It proved very successful. So that was a, a series of 13 one-hour episodes leading up to a winner who got a big prize and all that sort of stuff. We then made a second, third, fourth. In the end, we made seven series of that program. So it ran for what, six years because one, one year we ran two series <laughs> in a year. 
It got, I think, the largest audience of any program in Saudi Arabia at the time. It generated, we, we ran a viewer at home competition as well in one of these series. I think the third series when we first did that. Generated one and a half million postcard responses. So people had to physically mail a postcard to us. Imagine that the population of the kingdom at the time was 17 million. So that's a very, very high response rate. And these people were obviously self-elected, um, engaged in the brand and the program. And they, they gave us their names and their addresses and their status on these postcards. Um, so it was a fantastically rich data source. But at that time, nobody knew what to do with it. So in the end, Mars actually binned those postcards, didn't use the data at all, because what do you do with it? They didn't know what to do with it. I thought there was a real opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. And the reason I mentioned that story is because it led to the next stage in my career, which was to set up a relationship marketing agency specializing in building relations between brands and consumers through vehicles like sponsored television programming. We made a, an interesting football-based series with co-branding from both Pepsi and Snickers complementary brands in some ways, but, but competing companies in other ways. Again, very successful. And it started to generate a lot of consumer data that we, they were then able to use. Um, it, again, it was you know, pre-computer databases in many ways, but we could stick them into various forms of, yeah. of data retention. So very, very interesting. And, and um, we developed in the Middle East the first of uh, an ACORN-type classification system understanding physically where people live and the sort of neighborhood in which they live and therefore the sort of household that they've got, how many cars, how many people live in the house, um, what the sort of level of, of socioeconomic definition would be, which allowed us in very, very small areas to, to geo-target different sorts of, of communication. So people who live in, in you know, student accommodation or single-person flats are very different from people who live in large villas, um, different family status, different um, brand interests. And we could use that geotargeting data to help marketers. And did you launch this company? Like, yep. Uh, and how was it? Well, it, as I say, it, it uh, worked well. It generated a number of different programs. We, we uh, made programs for Saudi French Bank. We made programs for, uh, actually, we got the uh, Saudi Weather sponsored. We put some of these programs on satellite television, which was relatively new at the time, uh, as well as terrestrial. And, uh, yeah, everything was working well. I, I had a... A business partner who came from the uh, research field, and I was obviously more on, on the communications side of things. It worked well until that business partner disappeared overnight with the company funds. What? Which was a bit tricky. He ran away with all the money? Yeah, in short. <laughs> what? Oh. It was your business partner who was from Saudi Arabia? No, he was actually uh, an expatriate as well. So, and how long, how many years did the company last? That was about two years. And then one day he just vanished. One day he just vanished. Which creates certain operational difficulties, as you can imagine. So, so uh, whilst I was in its original format, I was doing more client communication and prospecting and new business generation. And he was doing more of the, the back office and the research and, and analysis and stuff. Uh, it became very difficult once he'd gone to try and do both. And yeah. particularly when the money had disappeared as well. Um, so that became quite quite tricky. And in order to regroup from that, I went back into advertising agency land and actually used that experience because I was recruited as a consultant to help an agency, Ogilvy, that you may have heard yep, of, definitely. 
in Saudi Arabia. So I was, I was living in Dubai at the time, but, but to go back to Saudi Arabia because they were pitching for the Toyota business and they wanted a pitch-winning idea. Toyota was the biggest advertiser in the Middle East at the time. They desperately wanted to win that business, so we came up with a television game show. Yeah. Uh, again. <laughs> but this was a game show that was built around uh, road consciousness and road safety and driving safety. It worked extremely well at numbers of levels. It was entertaining because it was a game show, yeah. but it had these substrands or covert educational objectives which clearly appealed to the Ministry of Interior and to the police and to the road safety department, as well as to, to uh, consumers and, and Toyota as a brand. It built the correct brand associations whilst being very positive for everybody else who has stakeholders. That was, um, again, it was a very successful program. It won the business for Ogilvy. Or their agency there is called Ogilvy Mimac. Agency chief said, well, it's great. We've won the business. We're not quite sure what to do with it now. Will you please run the agency as well? <laughs> so, so I agreed to run it for a year. That year obviously turned into two years. Uh, so still in Dubai? This was, no, this was in Saudi Arabia, back in oh, Saudi okay. Arabia a second time. Okay. Yeah. So I did that, and that, that was all quite successful and some, some interesting bits of business there as well. To be honest, I'm not sure it was, it was a great personal experience going back to Saudi Arabia because... All of the novelty of what is a very, very different culture had worn off in my first iteration. And all of the frustrations which exist in, in a, a very different sort of market were still there. So after a couple of years, I went back to Dubai um, and started to work with an agency called Lintas, or yep. Low Lintas as it was. And took on a number of roles there. I was their planning director and their new business director and a group account director all at the same time. Um, <laughs> And one of the things that we did there was um, in cooperation with Lowland House in London was win the HSBC business. HSBC didn't exist as a brand at that time. This was in 1999, but they wanted to. They were, they were 50 different brands around the world, uh, all owned by this holding company called Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. Yeah. Uh, so in the Middle East, it was the British Bank of the Middle East. In the UK, it was Midland Bank. In uh, Brazil, it was Banco Barabendas. In New York, it was Marine Midland. Uh, different brands, 50 yeah. different brands all over the world. So, um, and, and of course, th th their background had been commercial and trade banking largely. They did have some consumer banking. But the chairman of the bank at the time, Sir John Bond, wanted to be on the front foot with the changes that were coming over the horizon. So he could see that internet was a real force. Yeah. Internet was going to open borders, that so people were becoming more global in their perspectives, so traveling more, and therefore there was a real need for a single, powerful, global consumer brand rather than 50 different brands. Yeah. And that was the genesis of HSBC as a single brand, which launched in 1999. So that's why the Amazon campaign has always been very, um, like, the world's local bank, and even when they changed, they changed it to, like... Uh, uh, the ad, I remember the ad, we have our tablet is from here, we have a dog from here, we drink coffee from here, mm -hmm. do you remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He showed us in class. And yeah, that's why they've always been very, like trying to make everything one, like the full world. Well, not so much making everything one, more like um, recognizing the differences that exist around the world and understanding that what works somewhere could benefit somebody somewhere else. Yes, there's different points of view in different parts of the world, but we can benefit from those if we use them wisely. So we don't want to try and neuter culture. 
We don't want everything to be culturally agnostic. Yeah. But we do want to recognize the benefits that come from different cultures to help other cultures. And like this was this was like just during the boom or rise of in the internet. Like so this was yeah. nine, like this was 2000. Yeah, that's happened. right. That's where it all started. Yeah. And you were working in HSBC then. I was working on HSBC, working, oh, working in on. Okay. Yeah, so working on their advertising. And the original brief was purely just for for a, a corporate campaign, but very quickly that expanded to become um, everything that they did, so all of their different products and all of their different markets. And my role was obviously to, to lead that effort initially across the Middle East, but they didn't mandate their different either product heads, so head of credit cards or head of retail accounts or head of commercial banking or whatever, or their different countries. They didn't mandate them to use the global strategy. They wanted us to evangelize it and persuade them to come on board recognizing that if people are persuaded, they'll be more positive than if they're told to do it. So my role was very evangelical in those days yeah. in terms of <laughs> um, um, trying to, to be an ambassador for the brand and sell the brand strategy. And that worked to the point where in 2000, they moved me to Hong Kong to look after HSBC across the entirety of Asia Pacific, which was a big challenge, but huge fun. Uh, <laughs> huge fun. So, yeah. Um, I got, in my brief, if you like, I got more than half of the world's population. We were dealing actively with 28 countries and passively with another five or six. And obviously a, an awful lot of travel involved in that. I think at one point I did more than 100 long-haul flights in a year. But enormous. Um, and as you say, the world's local bank was a strategy that we, we created at the time, which I think a lot of people would recognize as being one of the if not the most successful financial services strategy in the history of, of marketing. It satisfied a number of objectives. John Bond set the objective of wanting to double shareholder value in five years. It achieved that in three. By the time I stopped working with them in 2005, it had built brand equity, uh, audited brand equity value from zero, because the brand didn't exist in 1999, to... Uh, $14 billion by 2005. and it was in six years. Yeah. It went on to get up to a height of $23 billion of, of audited brand value. So significant achievement. And if I'd been on commission, I wouldn't be sitting here now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be on a beach. <laughs> this was just... And you just left. Uh, just left when they started booming. Well, no. I mean, it was all part of the boom. But what, okay. what happened in 2005 was that the bank decided to, we as Lowe had all of their above-the-line communications, so their, their mass market communications and advertising. We had all of their media buying and planning around the world. But we didn't have uh, in-house all of the below-the-line work or even really any of the below-the-line work. So all the leaflets and letters and signage and bits and pieces and the local promotions and what have you. And in my patch in Asia, I was aware of about 630 agencies if you can call them agencies that were doing all this small bitsy bitsy work and very often because of the nature of that part of the world they'd be somebody's brother-in-law or somebody who had a Mac in a garage who could do stuff cheaply yeah. and as a consequence a lot of that stuff that was produced as collateral or below the line work or whatever you want to call it was off brand or was substandard or didn't adhere to corporate guidelines or, or whatever. And there really wasn't a way of policing it effectively unless we were to bring it all in-house. 
which would also make it more cost-effective. It would, yeah. And make us able to share best practice and all of that sort of stuff. So we recommended this to the bank. The bank said, yep, that's a good idea. We'll put the whole lot out for pitch. They, uh, they did put the below-the-line bit out for pitch, but they decided at the last minute to also put the media and the above-the-line communications out for pitch at the same time. Oh. So uh, that, were, that pitch was won by WPP, Sir Martin Sorrell, who got involved in a very heavy-handed way with the board. WPP uh, is with JW... WPB is a holding company that owns about a thousand different agencies okay. in different areas. But yes, it owns JWT, JW, yeah. oh. owns Ogilvy, owns Gray, owns Mindshare, amongst many, many other brands. So they, they won it. They put together their own team across. Uh, it was a, a cross-functional, cross-disciplinary team called uh, Team HSBC, which was one of the first holding companies' um, broad client-facing alignments since replicated by a number of other agencies, a number of other groups. So, for instance, there's Team Ford that looks after Ford. Um, there are Team Shell. There's lots and lots of others uh, who bring people from different agencies, different disciplines into one team to assist a client across their communications needs. You know, you worked, like, so much and so many years in advertising. Like, can you at least like, tell me that uh, how it's evolved and how it's changed, like, like you must have seen a change like drastically. You had to use different strategies for different companies in different times. So how would you say like it's that it's changed and evolved to what it is now? Oh, where to begin? Uh, it has changed hugely. Yep. It's changed in that certainly in advertising's early days, and to an extent in my early days. Although I don't go back as far as Mad Men, but uh, <laughs> a lot of advertising was fairly rational, fairly linear fairly one way so there wasn't very much that was emotional humor wasn't used very widely and certainly the idea of dialogue with consumers was not even thought of because there wasn't the mechanism to allow that really yeah. i think there has been a, a big shift in understanding i think that whilst in the early days brands expected and wanted consumers to respect them they've had to learn to respect consumers that's a big shift in mindset it's no longer the brand standing on a soapbox and shouting about how good it is. It's about trying to, in some way or other, have a dialogue. I hesitate to use the word relationship. I don't think many consumers have relationships with brands in the way that we would understand relationships. But there is some kind of, of interaction, and consumers certainly want to be more involved. They have more access to information. They have more critical abilities um, and critical tools available to them. And certainly they have many, many more ways of fighting back if they see something wrong or unjust or uh, inappropriate in the behavior of brands. And like, so now, like, as of most recently, you're saying the biggest turn advertising has is that it's become like, it's more personal. It's become like, they want to make relationships with consumers. It's yeah. become more personal and it's become a bit more uh, of a dialogue. Yeah. A bit more. I think there's a danger in assuming that it's all dialogue or that there's anything like a person-to-person -person relationship. Those who interact with brands are a particular type, and I think the majority of people don't interact in, a, in, a, in the form of a dialogue. Or putting all of your attention on, for instance, Twitter comments or Facebook feedback is a mistake. Those things are important but they're by no means the be-all and end-all. You still have to get the basics right. You have to understand your consumer. You have to understand what their motivations are, what their aspirations are, 
you have to think about your product or your service and make sure that the brand values that it espouses meet those needs, aspirations, desires. You have to think about uh, the future of your brand and therefore devise communications that are going to lead you along the right path. You know, like what this is like, you know what this reminds me of? Um, I remember in class one day, you showed us an ad of this gorilla playing a drum set, which was a Cadbury ad. And uh, you showed us that and we were all very confused. But we saw the purple colors and the white colors. Like it was Cad- We assumed it would be Cadbury. And then after the ad, you showed us what the agenda of the ad was. The creative brief. The creative brief, yeah, yeah. sorry. And after reading that, I thought that the ad was spectacular. I thought that they nailed it on the head. It was it was perfect. And and I was just assuming then I went back and looked at Cadbury stock or like whatever. It rised a lot and it got added hugely successful for a demographic which was more teenagers and stuff. I remember that and it was I just found it so interesting. Yeah, I think after whatever you've said, the how much goes into making an ad, like what do you think about what your customers want and how do you make what was the target audience what do you want them to feel what do you want to convey through the ad after that like I, after reading that and looking at the ad I thought it was fantastic yeah it was, it was a, an inspired piece of creativity yeah it really was very um, very left field as you'd expect brilliant creativity to be um, but it had enough of the brand cues to be instantly recognisable as Cadbury as you say yeah. but also enough novelty, innovation, surprise to delight the, the intended audience and to build awareness and to build relevance in ways that traditional Cadbury's dairy milk advertising hadn't in the, in the previous period. You worked in like a lot of countries, in a lot of places. And uh, yeah, which one was your favorite? I think it depends what you're asking. If you're asking uh, where's Work-wise. my favorite place to live or, yeah. or to work? Uh, answer both. Okay. To live, I think my f- favorite was probably uh, the four or five years I spent in Bangkok. Uh, and Bangkok is a fascinating, fascinating place. It exists on so many different levels. It has so many layers and so, so much cultural depth and history and, and uh, diversity and, and all sorts of stuff going on in ways that the more I lived there, the longer I spent there, the more I realized I knew nothing. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating place. And certainly you, you get to understand a lot more than you could ever do as a tourist. So Bangkok was really interesting from, from a, a living point of view. From a work point of view, I think that period in Hong Kong looking after yeah. HSBC w- was both the most challenging and the most rewarding. It was absolutely fascinating time um, and resulted in a strategy and then the consequent creative work that I'm really proud of. Yeah, and like because like you can also see this. Like I know you did not get the, that like great share, but... Because of your work and everything that you have put in, they like at least you've contributed so much in what they are right now or what they were till two thousand five. Yeah, which is fourteen yeah. billion, which is which is quite an achievement already. And indeed, yeah. And how did you went? How did you go on to become a teacher then? Like I know your, I read that your experience got you to give guest lectures. Did you enjoy it? Correct. I d- well, I did enjoy it. Um, it's something that I've done professionally anyway because I've always been involved in staff training and therefore what you could call education and done a certain amount of client training as well and in many ways giving a lecture is not dissimilar from uh, a lot of the work that I've done in advertising it's about having an idea and then trying to convince other people that it's a good idea effectively Uh, maybe it's different having a a room full of students versus a room full of board directors but 
the, the principles are the same. Uh, yes, I enjoyed it. I also felt uh, two things uh, were important to me. One was having uh, worked for whatever it was, as you say, too many years to remember, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the practitioner area. I was acutely aware of a big divide and a certain amount of disdain between academia and practice both sides being pretty disrespectful about the other. And I was curious about that and wanted to understand it and, if possible, wanted to see if there's any way of closing the gap because clearly both have got benefits to give to the other. Uh, and I also was very aware that having worked with, I don't know how many hundreds of clients over my career at different times who had marketing in their title, <laughs> many of those people didn't really deserve to have marketing in their title. So I was quite keen to do what little bit I could to raise the bar to allow clients and therefore agencies and therefore the overall to improve by degree in some shape or other. It's just great. You know, Donald, you have spoken so much about advertising and how you've worked and, and so little you've spoken about the struggles. You know, I'm, I can assume I'm very sure that the hours you had to work and almost single-handedly run stuff and the traveling and different, different cities would have been difficult for your family as well. And you have three... Three children. Three children, yeah. Yeah, and and I'm assuming after like you got married and straight, like you had to go to Saudi Arabia soon after. It like it's just brilliant that you have reached this point and you still don't talk about struggles. You talk about how you've reached this, which I find very admirable. Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to say that. Um, so I'm I know uh, we are we are I won't be respectful for your time. I just like just the last segment is just questions that I ask, which everyone just wants to know. Okay. Very basic questions. So, um, if your life was a movie, okay, what will be the turning point? Hmm. Like the mid-turning point that always after that you go uphill. That's a really difficult question because there are, I mean, you can look at all sorts of things and see uh, what, in hindsight, were consequences, but uh, unintended consequences. Yeah. And therefore, what was the turning point? I don't know. I mean, as an example, when I was at Durham, going right back to the beginning of our conversation... Well, I studied anthropology as part of my degree and in particular did some work looking at the marsh Arabs of Iraq, um, the Bakhtiari tribe. It was interesting. <laughs> I had no idea that that would lead me on in my first agency. It helped me get the job because the primary client I worked on was Saudi Arabian Airlines. So having some sort of understanding of Middle Eastern tribalism was helpful. It also led me later on to being uh, a suitable candidate or victim, I'm not sure which, to be sent to the Middle East. So, And it, it, it undoubtedly helped my cultural appreciation of the country in which I landed at that point. And many people get there and find that they can't cope. So um, was that a turning point or was it just something that happened on the way? Was uh, it a turning point having my children, a, yes. a big change in, in life? Was it a turning point in various other things I, I could mention? I think professionally the move to Hong Kong was probably the most seismic but I couldn't say that it was the only or the turning point yeah there's no one listening to your story I would say that actually I, I would say like turning point is just like when you had to do everything alone mm -hmm. literally alone that is when you grew the most and then quite possibly well, I, that's what I could feel from the story yeah quite possibly even when uh, unfortunately your business partner ran away you still got back 
I know like the business didn't work out, but you your experience was good enough to get you something else, and then which mm-hmm. led to HSBC. So in a way, it could be a good thing. It, it could be. It really could be. Could be. Last yeah. uh, yeah. just couple of minutes. I'm just gonna ask you like straight fire, rapid fire question. Okay. Uh, favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie. Uh, good question. I could go way back to some <laughs> some of the really odd things like like. Peter uh, Nuttall said Green Mile. Did he? Uh, interesting. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's a big choice. I saw an inspirational film the other day, The Dawn Wall, which I thought was extraordinary, about somebody's perseverance and challenge to get up um, that extraordinary rock face, 3,000-meter rock face in Yosemite. Dawn Wall. Uh, the Dawn Wall, a solo climb, uh, uh, amazing. Okay, so I, I'll check that out. Check tonight. it out. I will check it out tonight, and I'll email you. Do that. Uh, favorite book? Uh, most recommended or favorite book? There's a book I'm currently reading, which I think is fascinating and plays to a lot of the tunes that I've been singing, which is called The Surveillance Economy. And it digs around and unearths uh, some of the real social concerns which exist in t- about the development of these, whatever you want to call them, superheroes or supervillains of the digital world and how basically we are all pawns in the world's largest social experiment. That's intense and interesting. Everything that we do is under surveillance. It's analysed by Google, analysed by Facebook, analysed by Microsoft, analysed by Amazon, and increasingly by by Alibaba and other social giants, if you like. Okay, this is definitely a conversation for another day I want to have with you. I also have read about and and watched a lot about this. My father, in terms of advertising, recommended me a book called Dream Big. It's Have you read it? I haven't read it. No, it's about the people, um, which is a very famous brewery of beer that owns all the beer brands. Uh, and House of Bush? And House of Bush, yeah. yeah. So it's about three of them. They started it. And it's, it's a very fascinating yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's okay. a fascinating story. Yeah. Favorite food? Favorite food. Having lived for a long time in the Middle East, I definitely like spicy food. Um, nice. And probably, probably Thai Oh, so time, right. apologies to Indian food, but no, probably <laughs> no, time. <laughs> I do uh, like a lot of Indian food as well. But. I'll cook you some. Uh, do. Birthday? Yeah. Birthday? Yeah. Whose? Yours. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mine is your birthday. In February. Favorite color? Favorite color is probably, and maybe that's linked because I'm Aquarian by star sign. And favorite color would probably be somewhere in the blue spectrum. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. Thank you so much for doing this. And I hope, genuinely hope we can do this again. Excellent. Well, thank you. And it's, it's a pleasure to do it.